Hi, this is Jim Sheriff, and welcome to Contrary Evidence. This week, we're going to look at some of the shortcomings in our U.S. history education. We're going to look at racial disparities in income and wealth and explore some ideas about reparations. This episode is likely to make listeners uncomfortable. Sure made me uncomfortable writing it. One thing that I've learned over the past five years is that my U.S. history education was pretty deficient. This is especially true as it pertains to understanding the impact of racism. One of the key purposes of studying history is to learn from mistakes made in the past. During my formal education, I never heard about the atrocities in Tulsa in 1921. I never heard about the compromise on the wording of the 13th Amendment with the insertion, except for punishment for crime, which allowed plantation owners to force many blacks back into servitude well after the Civil War. I never heard about the fact that black veterans returning from World War II were effectively denied access to the GI Bill to buy homes and to go to college, and the devastating effect of that injustice on black wealth today. In Germany, citizens are forced to learn about the atrocities of the Nazi party in hopes that mistakes of that magnitude can be avoided in the future. Our lack of knowledge about our true history is contributing to our inequality today. Our nation was formed with aspirational goals to form a more perfect nation. Our Constitution and our founding fathers were not perfect. The nation was founded by predominantly racist leaders. In general, they were racist out of ignorance, not out of malice. I prefer the definition of racism as the belief that different races possess distinct characteristics, abilities, or qualities, especially as to distinguish them as inferior or superior to one another. By this definition, how can you not classify our founders as racist? Even those that pushed back against allowing slavery bought into the narrative that whites were superior. My purpose is not to criticize the founders. Just like they lack knowledge about modern medicine and science that we take for granted today, they falsely believed that blacks were inferior to whites. They were ignorant racists. Why would we not want to acknowledge that fact in our study of U.S. history? What possible good can come from pretending that it was not true? We can be proud of our heritage without being blinded to past mistakes. Part of the impetus to the 1619 Project was to expose the inadequacies in what we were teaching people about our history. The criticism for the inaccuracies and the mischaracterizations in the 1619 Project are well-founded. It went way too far in painting the nation as first and foremost a country founded on racism. However, we must acknowledge that our nation started with a pretty racist narrative. Without studying our true history and the mistreatment of blacks, how can we have an intelligent conversation about reparations? This would be equivalent of asking a jury in a civil trial to decide damages without hearing the facts about the plaintiff's injuries. Now, my knee-jerk reaction to any discussion about reparations is just to say no. I see all kinds of flaws in any affair approach to reparations. 
Who qualifies? What benefits can be delivered that do not cause unintended negative consequences? What are the goals? And how will we know that it was a good use of money? Will giving people money actually help? With that as my first reaction to reparations, I have sought contrary evidence. I've read more than a dozen studies on economic mobility and income and wealth disparities, and I have four primary takeaways. First, the evidence is overwhelming that success begets success. Children that are born into lower-income families have limited upward mobility. The birth family lottery is very real. Second, the disparity in wealth is getting worse even as progress has been made on income disparity. Today, the median family income of white families is approximately 50% higher than black families. The median family wealth of white families is over 600% higher than black families, and that disparity is increasing. Third, the data shows that black and white full-time working women raised in families of comparable income levels, have comparable earnings. That is very encouraging. But it's important to understand that this does not mean that the incomes of black and white women are equal because of the disparity in the family incomes into which they were born. This parity is absolutely not the case for black males. Black males born into families at the 75th income percentile well, well above the median income, will have incomes that are on average 12 percentile points below their white counterparts. That can be as much as $40,000 a year difference in earnings. My fourth takeaway is that the extreme income disparities for black males are driven by two significant factors. Black male children are much more negatively impacted when raised by a single mother than their female counterparts. The prevalence of single-parent families is over twice as high for blacks as whites. I believe that all boys are positively influenced by having involved male role models. The data shows the importance of role models. Black male children who live in neighborhoods with a large number of married fathers have comparable earnings to white males from the same income class. Single-parent families are also three times more likely to live below the poverty line. The other factor impacting black males is the high incarceration rate. Black men are incarcerated eight times more than whites. Some estimates show that the lifetime incarceration rate for black males born into the bottom income quintile is over 20%. The compounding generational impact of that incarceration rate combined with the known impacts of male children brought up in single-parent families over time helps explain some of the economic inequality. So coming back to reparations, what should we do? If we want to make a difference, where should we put our money? There are no perfect solutions, but it is a time for some bold level of experimentation. The biggest disparity that exists today is wealth, and the trends are going in the wrong direction. I have the following proposal. But before I lay out my proposal, 
Let me also acknowledge that we must address issues associated with single-parent households and our criminal justice system. I will not discuss solutions to those issues in this episode, but I want to stress how important they are to achieving economic equality. On reparations, my thought is to create a sort of IRA or 401k plan for eligible black families. These tax-free accounts would be funded by the government and optionally from the families. I envision some basic government contributions as well as matching contributions. Investments of these funds would be restricted to stocks, bonds, and real estate. Families could withdraw funds for education expenses or to purchase a home or to help a child buy a home But otherwise, the funds would be unavailable until the account holders reached the age of 45 and until they had been in place for at least 10 years. In order to allow families to navigate financial crises, limited withdrawals with penalties would also be allowed for approved emergencies. Determining the eligibility requirements would be tricky and likely very complicated. I would recommend that only black families with net assets below $100,000 qualify for the program. In order to work out the best criteria and process for determining eligibility, I would recommend pilots to test different methods. Once the process was proven, it could be scaled. In my concept, only heads of households would be eligible. Two parent families living in the same household would qualify for double government contributions. There would be a clear two-parent incentive. Eligible heads of households would be required to take an annual course on financial literacy. These courses would help participants gain a basic understanding of family budgeting, the stock market, and real estate. If the average government annual contribution to the investment fund was $9,000 per head of household, and if half of the black heads of households qualified for the program, it would cost about $150 billion for the first year, plus some sizable administrative costs, not at all insignificant. However, the investments would shrink to zero over an eight to nine year period as more and more black families moved up the wealth ladder. At the end of the decade, we could see a substantial narrowing of income and wealth disparities. We would see big increases in black family home and stock ownership. At a cost of approximately $750 billion over a decade, we could make a sizable dent in our obligations to right the wrongs of our past and dramatically impact the hopes and aspirations of millions of families. The implementation issues for my proposal are extensive and potentially unsolvable. However, if we don't try something bold, we will be discussing the economic inequality issue 50 years from now. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and family about this series, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the newest episodes. You can also read the transcripts on medium.com and leave your feedback. Have a good week, and talk to you soon.